Hello and welcome to the Stuck Brain Podcast. All things mental health with a different approach. We look at the research, but we also discuss real life experience. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Stuck Brain Podcast. I am your host, Eric Osterland, and in this episode, I have a co-host named Pinky. She is a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. If you want to know more about her, you can go to the stuckbrainpodcast.com. Hello and welcome listeners to another episode. Today we'll be discussing the different treatment options available in psychiatry for various mental health disorders. Now, as we did our research for this podcast, we realized the current treatment options kind of fall into three different categories. One being on-label, things that have an FDA approval and indication for specific mental health disorders. The second being off-label, where there is no FDA indication, but research and treatment has shown those treatments to be effective for certain mental health disorders. And then the third being experimental in that these treatments haven't been around that long as far as research studies, but they seem to have promising results coming up in the pipeline soon. So experimental, we want to be clear, that's not really a category, but it's a way that we refer to them and talk about them. When we go through the experimental category, you'll see that they do have some good research and they have been studied but they're still kind of seen as experimental in the general community. That's why we chose that category. Okay, so let's get started with on-label treatments. Now, if you were to walk into a clinician's office, someone who specializes in psychiatry, probably one of the first treatment options they're going to offer you are medications, and usually specifically SSRIs, which are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Now, these have been around since the 1980s, and when they first came out, they were really promising because compared to some of the older antidepressants, the new SSRIs like Prozac had significantly less side effects and was determined to be generally safer and better tolerated than the older medications. Absolutely. It was quite a big deal when they came out because they didn't have all those side effects and risk of overdose, like the tricyclic antidepressants had. Yeah, and and there's inherently a big problem in handing over a bottle of tablets that overdosing can be fatal to a patient that's already experiencing symptoms of depression and experiencing feelings of suicidality. Or might just have that poor impulse control and accidentally take too many tablets. Yeah, so it was a great thing when the SSRIs like Prozac, Zoloft, Lexapro, some of the commonly prescribed ones came out. And soon after that, there was the invention of the second generation antipsychotics, which also were determined to be safer than its older counterparts and more effective. Yeah, those have their own category of side effects than the different ones, but they were considered to be slightly safer. Right. And over the years, the studies have kind of shown to be not as promising as I guess I would have liked. SSRIs show to be effective in one out of three people. One out of three people are have a full response to these medications. One out of three people are partial responders. 
And then one out of three people usually do not have any response to the medication. So I don't know. I mean, when you kind of look at it overall, I, I don't know if 30% is such a significant rate. But compared to the treatment options that have been offered in the past, it was definitely a significant improvement at the time. Absolutely. What about the other things like TMS? Yeah. So TMS, which, is, which stands for transcranial magnetic stimulation, is a non-invasive form of brain stimulation in which a magnetic field is used to induce an electrical impulse in the brain. An electric pulse generator or a stimulator is connected to a magnetic coil, which is connected to the patient's scalp. Now, the mechanism of action in TMS isn't quite clear, but evidence suggests that it causes long-term inhibition and excitation of neurons in certain areas of the brain. So it, it inhibits activity in certain areas of the brain, and it increases activity in certain areas areas of the brain. And this is thought to have that antidepressant action in clients. It's quite a commitment, though. Don't you have to go once a day for how many days is it? Yeah. So the FDA actually recommends at least 20 sessions. The sessions should be about five times a week. And actually, the standard prescription for TMS is about 36 sessions over six weeks. And, and that's where patients tend to experience the most improvement after 30 sessions or so. So, yeah, it's quite a bit of commitment. And, and you can't drive afterwards. You know, you need someone to help you out. So there's definitely a lot of time commitment and investment involved. Insurance will mostly cover it, though, nowadays. They used to not, but now they're starting to cover it. Absolutely. Insurance will cover it for the specific diagnosis of treatment-resistant depression, not just plain major depressive disorder. And this is because the research studies for TMS are limited to patients with treatment-resistant depression. So there's some pros and cons. It could help. There are some side effects or potential seizures and stuff like that, right? Yeah. So it's generally thought that TMS is well-tolerated and has limited side effects. But there is the potential for seizures because you are delivering an electrical impulse into the brain. So, of course, that's, that's always a concern. And then patients who have any type of recent cardiac or neurological event or patients that have a, any type of magnetic implant, which may include pacemakers, are generally not eligible for TMS. Yeah, that makes sense. The TMS can mess with the pacemaker. Right. So, Eric, what, have you seen patients who have been through TMS treatment? And what have, what have those responses been like? That's a great question. So I have seen several clients that have gone through TMS. And for me, it's a mixed bag. I do have some clients that have said it's helped. It did fade over time. I've had a couple of clients say that the commitment was really hard, so they dropped halfway through. A lot of them tried TMS because it is covered by insurance. Yeah. So they would go to that and try it. I've had a mixed bag of people saying that it was absolutely helpful, game changer, and then other people that are like, it didn't really do anything for me. So, but I am not an expert in TMS. I don't prescribe it. You know, I've never really worked with it. I've seen it a couple times of it being done. Right. But I'm definitely not an expert in it. It is an option. I mean, it seems less intense than ECT, right? right? Electroconvulsive therapy. And none of the clients that I talked to had that amnesia type of reaction that you see with ECT. 
Yeah, that's definitely an, an advantage of TMS. You don't experience that memory loss. Yes, yeah. So in that aspect, I, I think it would be a good idea. I mean, everybody's different. So yeah. I'm glad it's out there because it's a different approach. I mean, I don't know if I recommend it because I just don't know much about it. Yeah. When it first came out, I was actually very hopeful about it. And I did refer quite a few patients for it. But over the years, it seemed like for the um, amount of time commitment and investment involved, my patients didn't feel like there was enough of a return on investment, I guess. They didn't feel the benefits at the level of time commitment that was involved. So I don't know. I, I guess I, I kind of experienced a mixed bag as well. I had a couple of patients who swore by it, said it was, you know, helped their symptoms significantly. But I, I want to say probably majority of the patients were kind of, I guess it helped. I'm not sure. It, it didn't seem to have results with an, you know, not, not the results I would have hoped, I guess. Yeah, I'm the same way. It, when people say it, it worked, they're exactly that. They're kind of in the middle ground. I think it worked. It worked for a little bit. I'm not sure if it worked, but I think I feel better. It wasn't like you said, wow, that worked. I feel changed. Yeah. yeah. It, it doesn't feel like a groundbreaking treatment, I guess. Yeah. But if there's any clients out there that it was, please write in and let us know. Yeah, absolutely. If you've had success with TMS or you would like to share your experience with TMS, we would absolutely love to hear from you. Let's talk about a different type of medication, S-ketamine or Spravato. Yeah, so that was FDA approved just maybe three or four years ago, not that long. Yeah, not that long. Do you, do you want to talk about it? Sure. Now, S-ketamine comes from ketamine. So it's an isomer of ketamine. So ketamine has two main isomers, R, the R isomer and the S isomer. And the pharmaceutical company that patented it took ketamine, broke it apart, and they patented the S-ketamine part of it and called it Spravato. Now, it works differently than SSRIs and SNRIs. It has a different mechanism of action. And a lot of clients say it does work. It has to be done in the office, right? It right. has to be done under the supervision of a clinician or a healthcare provider. Absolutely. So S-ketamine, the interesting thing about that is they they have to use what is called REMS. REMS is stands for risk evaluation and mitigation strategy. So part of that strategy is you have to do the ketamine in the office. It has to be a prescriber. They keep the the S-ketamine there with them and they give it to you and then you use it and stay in the office for four hours and they take your blood pressure. A lot of people have complained or wish they would have required therapy with it. And I kind of agree with that. I think part of the REMS strategy, the risk evaluation and mitigation strategies mm -hmm. should have been to say you have to do one to two sessions of therapy beforehand or something of that nature to augment the S-ketamine because it seems limiting. And why do you think therapy is important? How does it relate to S-ketamine ther therapy? Therapy is important for a couple different reasons. One, that's part of the healing process. When you do S-ketamine or ketamine, you're probably going to have some sort of experience. And that's part of the healing journey is to be able to have someone to share that with and take it apart and unpack it. And just the feeling of support 
right? The feeling that I'm doing the most I can do to get better, that is going to augment the S-ketamine. And so I, I think it, I think they should change that and say it has to be done with therapy. But then there's a lot of people that don't want to do therapy at all. Yeah, I hear that. But from the research I've done, it seems that if you're going to undergo psychedelic therapy, most treatment protocols do involve some type of talk therapy or psychotherapy involved, where like you said, you're, you're sitting down and reflecting on what you've just experienced. And the psychedelics put you mentally in a space where you're able to work through emotions that generally feel very uncomfortable in everyday life. And, and so you're able to examine them from a different point of view when you're under the influence of a psychedelic. And that's why it's important to have someone around who you can work through those things with. Yeah. So the, the pros and cons of S-ketamine is it can be expensive. It is sometimes covered by insurance. Sometimes you have to show that you've tried other modalities first before you go to the S-ketamine. But it is, it's pretty expensive and you have to do it in the doctor's office. That's correct. It has to be, like I said earlier, it has to be done under the care of a healthcare provider. It can be difficult to access. It can be quite expensive. But if you have a psychiatrist or other psychiatric clinician you're working with, there's usually a little bit of extra paperwork, like you said, to demonstrate that you have tried you know, other treatment options available and they haven't been successful. So S-ketamine definitely has research studies backing up its efficacy and it, it's, it's definitely worth the try if, if you've been experiencing difficulty with finding the right treatment option for depression. Yeah, especially also if you have passive death wish, I wish I wasn't here, thoughts like that, S-ketamine could probably definitely help with that. It seems to kind of knock those down a notch or two. Yeah, actually, research has demonstrated the effectiveness in rapidly decreasing those thoughts of suicidality and patients experiencing that. So it, it definitely could be a very effective treatment for a lot of people. Pinky, let's talk about off-label use. And what does that mean? So off-label use means using a medication or treatment for a condition that the FDA has not approved an indication for. Now, this doesn't mean it's not effective, but it just hasn't been researched and studied the way the FDA requires some of the medications to be. However, there's still a lot of evidence to show that these treatments might be helpful. So the main treatment that comes to mind is ketamine or the other isomer of ketamine that you were referring to earlier. Yeah, the racemic ketamine, which means it has both the R isomer and the S isomer, the original formula. Now, there's a reason why the pharmaceutical companies took racemic ketamine and broke it apart, because you can't patent racemic ketamine. It's been around way too long, right? Right. So they did take the ketamine and they broke it apart, and then they patented the S isomer to show that it helped with anxiety and depression and suicidality. Now, the other reason why a lot of these treatments are off-label, but they're still effective, the reason why they're not on-label is because that would take a lot of research. And who is going to pay the bill to get yeah. a medication approved for something that they can't make money on? So part of the reason why it's considered off-label and we, we use it all the time off-label 
is because nobody wants to pay for the research to get done, right? Because it's just ex expensive and there's no money to be made. Unfortunately, that's how everything works. Yeah, exactly. And because of that, there's several different routes of administration for ketamine because there's no standard protocol. Ketamine is available via IV. And that, and that's the that's the initial route that was offered for depression. But since then, we've evolved into being able to receive ketamine treatments through oral tablets, through IM injections, and various other routes like the nasal spray. Even per rectum. There is yeah. some people that have been prescribed ketamine per rectum to help. So this is commonly done off-label. Like we have lots of other medications that are considered off-label that we use. Prozosin is one. It's a blood pressure medication, but we stumbled upon it working for nightmares. So sometimes we prescribe it for nightmares. Yeah. So that's another medication. And this, this theme happens throughout the medical field. The theme of we create a medication for one thing, and then we find out that it works better for something else. And the famous example, and I've talked about this multiple times because it's, it's pretty easy to explain, is they were looking for a blood pressure medicine, mm -hmm. and they, tried, they were going through FDA approval for this blood pressure medicine, but all the male participants kept saying they had an erection, and that was Viagra. So they took Viagra, they were originally trying to get it patented for blood pressure, and then they figured out that it worked better for erectile dysfunction, so they patented it for erectile dysfunction, or FDA approved it for that. And we see that with all kinds of medications. So ketamine was that way, you know, it was for anesthesia, we found out that it helped with anxiety and depression. Thorazine that was that way, we found out that it worked great for voices and hearing things and seeing things, so we used it that way. Prozosin is one, a whole bunch of other medications. We use them off-label. So when you hear the term off-label, it doesn't mean that it's bad or we're going against the flow. It just means nobody ha wants to spend the money to get them on-label. It's the basic problem with that. Right. Let's move into okay. experimental. So let's talk about what we call the experimental treatments available. Now, Eric, do you want to explain what we mean by experimental when we talk about these treatments? Yes. So I want to be as transparent as I can. This is not an actual category. This is just how Pinky and I see this category because it's perceived this way through the general public. I believe there's a lot of hope in these experimental treatments. And they're, ironically, these experimental treatments have a lot of research behind them or are right. gaining more research, let's say behind them. So soon these quote experimental treatments are going to be probably on on label treatments and FDA approved. So the first one is MDMA thanks to MAPS which stands for Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. They've been doing research on MDMA for a very very long time. So it's pretty well researched MDMA for PTSD. Mm -hmm. But what I like about MAPS and how they they've done it. They didn't just say, here's a tablet of MDMA. Have fun. We'll see you later. Hope it helps. Right. They make their clients go through therapy ahead of time before they even approach MDMA. So they do like eight hours of therapy a couple times. They have two therapists with them while they're doing the actual experience. So what I really like about MAPS is they see the full picture. 
they're not just med heavy or therapy heavy. They see how MDMA is a catalyst to therapy. So it feels like they have the bigger picture of, of mental health, which I think is important. So soon that's going to be on-label FDA approved for treatment. Yeah, that's supposed to be approved hopefully sometime later this year. And the research studies so far have been so promising. They've shown veterans with PTSD and debilitating symptoms to be able to return to society and, and contribute to society in a meaningful way again. It's incredibly promising and, and a great time in psychiatry for this treatment to be coming out. Absolutely. And what I like about the research is they even show that their therapy alone without the MDMA helped with PTSD. And don't quote me on this, but it's somewhere around 33%. So even just their therapy alone without the MDMA helped. Then they added MDMA to it, and then it shot up to like 60 to 70%. Now, once again, I don't have that stat right in front of me, but it's something like that, which just showed that the MDMA is an augmenter of therapy. And that's how we need to look at it. Not MDMA is the all or nothing magic pill. Right. And I think this has been consistently illustrated in, in psychiatric research, even with SSRIs or other pharmacotherapeutic agents, studies have shown that combining medication with, you know, traditional cognitive behavioral therapy or some type of talk therapy will result in a higher rate of improvement of symptoms than therapy or than medication alone. Absolutely. That is correct. Let's move on to the next one. Psilocybin. For those of you that don't know what psilocybin is, Psilocybin is the active ingredient in what is called shrooms or magic mushrooms hallucinogenics. Now, psilocybin is still in the experimental category. That's where Pinky and I put it. Psilocybin is now gaining research as well. And pretty good, pretty top-notch research is being done. So their first main research, well, I don't want to say first main. The first significant study after several decades of not having one, I guess. Yes, that's a great way to put it was the psilocybin used for end-of-life cancer clients and how that really alleviated some of the anxiety and existential crisis around end-of-life anxiety and depression. And that was kind of, in my mind, that was the, the study that brought psilocybin back to the table. One of the great studies that is being done with psilocybin is done by Carl Hart Harris, I believe that's how you say his name. And we'll put a link to this. And I've talked about this study before. They actually did a double-blind study with psilocybin against a leading SSRI, Lexapro. Yeah. And from what I understand, the results of this research were pretty groundbreaking. What did they end up finding out? Yeah. So we talked about this in the other podcast, but they basically found out that psilocybin does just as good a job, if not better, than Lexapro. With less side effects, people had more of a connection feeling with the psilocybin than they did with the Lexapro. And But once again, what was so great about this study is they also added therapy to both, both clients. So the clients right. that were taking the psilocybin got therapy, and the clients that were taking the Lexapro got therapy. And they did a placebo with this experiment, which was pretty amazing. 
The only one argument against this study is that it was six weeks. And the people that are in favor of Lexapro, you know, their argument is that it needed to be done longer than six weeks. Yeah, so SSRIs traditionally take six weeks or more to take effect. So like you said, the argument was not enough time was given for the Lexapro to do its job. But that's almost an advantage of the psilocybin where patients are experiencing immediate relief after just one session from their anxiety and depression. And not only do they experience immediate relief, but long-lasting relief. Absolutely. So if you want more information on that, I would check out our other podcast, Psychiatry is Changing. We'd go into more detail about that study and why wouldn't somebody choose psilocybin over, over an SSRI. The next one we should talk about is ayahuasca. Now, ayahuasca is definitely in the experimental category. It's been around for a long time, but as far as research, I don't know if there's a lot of research yeah, so like you said, ayahuasca has been around for hundreds of years. It's traditionally been used by forest-dwelling shamans in the Amazon, and people in the Western world came across it as a treatment for mental health disorders. And, and in the Amazonian cultures, it's it's been used for hundreds of years for various physical and mental conditions. So yeah, people made their way over to the Amazon, had these ayahuasca treatments, Ayahuasca is DMT and other plant roots derived from plants in the Amazon. And they have a psychedelic effect, which can alleviate depression and anxiety. Yeah, this one, I believe, definitely needs to stay in the experimental category. I've had a lot of clients that have tried it. You can't prescribe it, so I obviously can't prescribe it. And I'm not telling people to go out and try it or not. I'm just, this is what I've seen. A lot of clients said that it has helped them. Right. And I don't know if that's because of the experience. I don't know if that's actually because of the DMT. And I don't think we know that because we don't have the research on that. So we can't really say that. Yeah. At this point, there's a lot of theories behind it, but not a lot of hard evidence research that we can refer to. Yeah. So I know they are starting to do it here in the United States through religious rites. There are some exemptions to use ayahuasca in a religious setting, but it's still very controlled and difficult to get into some of those programs in the United States. It's very limited. I personally am only aware of two or three, if that. Most people travel to South America or, or Costa Rica or somewhere else in Latin America to, to get ayahuasca treatment. And it seems like there are more and more treatment centers opening up, providing ayahuasca retreats. But again, it's it, it doesn't have a lot of research supporting its use. But that doesn't mean that it's not effective. It just means we haven't researched it. Yeah. yeah. And then once again, usually research falls around, can we make money off of it? So a pharmaceutical company isn't going to spend billions of dollars in ayahuasca to patent it because they, they can't patent it. And the other thing is psychedelics are categorized as a Schedule one medication under the Narcotics Act. So that prevents research from occurring because it's illegal and not accessible. Yeah. So you have to get certain grants and permissions from the government to be able to study it. And that's once again why MAPS was so amazing because they went through that whole legal channel to get it right. above board so they could research it, which is amazing. They tried to take the politics out of it. Yeah. We'd be happy to bring you additional information on those topics. Just remember that all of these treatments should be done under the supervision of a healthcare provider. 
And we do recommend that any treatment you seek out, you do work with a, a therapist or someone you can talk to to process what, what you're experiencing. Yeah. They all have pros and cons. So make sure you're aware of them. Make sure the person that is that you're working with, you trust and is an expert in what they do because you want to make sure you're doing what's best for you. Once again, thank you for listening to our podcast. And those of you that have taken time to leave reviews and contact us through Instagram, thank you. You can see the show notes at stuckbrainpodcast.com. You can also visit us on Instagram at stuckbrainpodcast, and you can leave what topics you want to hear next.